we had a lot to cover this week. <laughs> 19 through 21 is a lot of scripture. Uh, a lot happens in the life of Abraham and Sarah and Lot and the fertile plain. We're going to really kind of dig down into chapter 19 and just skim through 20 and 21 because you've been in it all week anyway. And the Lord just had me immersed in Genesis 19 this week. And I want us to pick up there, what do we know has happened in 18? And Jean did such a great job uh, two weeks ago now. Back to Genesis 18. The Lord, in a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, has come to visit Abraham and Sarah with two angels. And the Lord tells them, a year from now, I'm going to come back. Sarah will have given birth to a son. And then he says, should we tell Abraham what's about to happen? So he tells them about the destruction and the outcry of the sin from Sodom and Gomorrah and that it's about to be destroyed. And so Abraham, knowing what? He's already rescued Lot once, right? So now he's going to step in to rescue Lot once again. And knowing that Lot lives in that fertile valley and not knowing exactly probably where he was, he began to intercede and said, Lord, would you really destroy 50 righteous people with the wicked? Lord, that's not who you are. And the Lord says, no, I won't. I won't for 50. And you know, we know he negotiates all the way down to 10. And the Lord tells him, if there are 10 righteous people, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we know from our study this week, there were not 10. So we're going to pick up there chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Now that sounds weird to us, but that really was customary then. And there is a strong uh, emphasis on hospitality still in the Middle East. So if someone comes into your village or your town, you were obligated to open your home, to provide for them, to provide a meal for them, lodging for them, and to also take care of their animals. But if not, they could spend the night in the square. They're not quite used to the comfort <laughs> that we deal with. Totally different lifestyle. But Lot has some insight into Sodom. And so he recognizes these guests, assumes that they're important, and he invites them into his home. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers. Now listen to what he's calling them. He's connecting with them. He's calling them brothers. Do not act wickedly. He understands what they're doing is wicked. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like, as if that's not wicked. Only do nothing to these men in so much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. 
They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-laws to be jesting, only kidding. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. What does that tell us about his affections? So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life, do not look back, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, as if God protecting him, preserving him, and rescuing him was not enough. He is saying, oh no, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have magnified your loving kindness, which you've shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you've spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Don't miss the importance of intercessory prayer here. What did it say? God remembered Abraham and spared Lot. Now, let's think a little bit about what we've got going on here. Do you know what a vortex is? I've used this illustration in the past. A vortex can be a swirling uh, like liquid, like water, like a whirlpool. It can be like a swirling air mass, like a tornado. In fact, um, Merriam-Webster said it's a mass of fluid such as a liquid with a whirling or circular motion that tends to form a cavity or vacuum in the center of the circle and to draw toward this cavity or vacuum bodies subject to its action. Dictionary.com said it can be a whirling mass of air in the form of a column or irresistible force. There is a progression to sin. And we live in a world and a cultural vortex that is literally sucking us into it and our children and our grandchildren. 
Some people have talked about when you become a believer and you live in the world, it's like swimming upstream. You're going against the current. Have you ever been to the beach when the current's really strong? We took all of our kids to the beach. We kind of do it every couple of years when we all go together. And so we've got all these kids out there. And so you're watching them like a hawk. Well, one day it was really rough. In fact, one day there was a double red flag. We couldn't even go in the water. We built sandcastles and we ended up going back and finding a pool. But um, you couldn't even get in the water because it was so dangerous. But the day we were down there that it was really rough, but they were allowed to get in the water, we're all hovering over the kids like this. And what would happen as they were riding the waves in on their little boogie boards and even body surfing, they kept moving down the beach further and further. And Pops would go, hey, guys, guys, move back. I can't tell you how many times we did that. Why? Because the current was pulling them away. The current of this world will pull you in if you're not pushing against it. There is no neutrality. You can never coast. You're either being sucked into the world or you are aggressively, diligently pursuing Jesus Christ. There is no in-between. You cannot live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You're going to be torn apart. And the most miserable people are those who are double-minded. The Bible says they're unstable in all their ways. We're going to see Lot was a double-minded man. He knew of the God of heaven and earth. He was there with Abram when he was called. He knew that God had given them the land. And when Abraham had told them, look out and you can choose. God has given us all this land. You choose the part you want. I will take whatever's left over. And he looked out and he saw the fertile Jordan Valley and goes, ooh, that looks like the best of the best. I'll choose that for myself. And he pitches his tent toward Sodom. And then we know he ends up in Sodom when the armies came in and took them captive. And when we come back to Genesis 19, where is he? He's sitting in the gate, which means he's a leader. He is an elder in the city. That was like the courtroom. That was where disputes were brought. That judgments were made there. So Lot has become a leader. I don't think he probably originally intended for that to happen, but he pitched his tent toward Sodom and it just kind of pulled him in. He had become complacent and content. He was no longer able to have an influence because he had allowed his environment to shape him instead of shaping it. In fact, Warren Wearsby said, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body arrived there. No doubt he got his first love for the world when he went to Egypt with Abraham and he never overcame it. You do not drift into godliness. You are greatly impacted by those you surround yourself with. And if you think about Jesus himself, think about his 12 disciples, but then think about his inner circle. Most of us have an inner circle of intimates, people that we're closest to, a, a best friend, a spouse, uh, a sister that you're just really close with and they know everything about you. Like you hold nothing back from them. And as women, we kind of do that. Men don't always do that quite as well as we do, but if we're with somebody long enough and we feel safe with them, we're going to spill the beans. We're just going to share our whole story with them. And that's part of how we bond. And if you notice little girls when they're playing together on the playground, what are they doing? They're face to face. Men are usually shoulder to shoulder. They're doing an activity. But we are relating because that is part of the way God has created us as females is to relate face to face. And so we're, we've got those people that we're closest to. And I've shared this quote before, you will be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That is so important for us, but it is so 
terribly important for our children and our grandchildren to understand. You will be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So your intimates, the people you're closest to, need to be diligently pursuing Christ just as you are. They should be sharpening you, encouraging you, challenging you, inspiring you. When you're in their presence, you should leave wanting to know Jesus more intimately, wanting to serve him more fervently. That's what they should do for us. And then you've got a a group, like your small group, your Bible study group, or maybe a discipleship group, or a group of, extended group of friends, like Jesus 12, that are going to sharpen you, encourage you. You're kind of growing together. You're growing and you share things with each other that God is revealing to you. But then you've got that other bigger group that Christ had that you're concerned about, but they're not your intimates because they're not passionately pursuing Christ. They may be the ones you're praying for, you're interceding for to have a rich rewarding walk with Christ. Or maybe they're lost and you're asking the Lord to give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But they're not your intimates. They cannot be because they're going to pull you away from Christ if they are. In fact, what does the scripture say? 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Listen to James 4.4. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So the question for us is, how do we resist the cultural vortex of the world and instead create a God-shaped vortex of love for God and neighbor, a blessing vortex, which is exactly what we're trying to do with our little blessed cards. We are taking the light of the gospel and the love of Christ out into a culture that is dark and broken and hurting, and we are being a blessing because we've been blessed like Abraham in Abraham to be a blessing. God told him, your descendants are going to bless the nations, bless the world, and we are the ones who are to be fulfilling that promise. God has already promised that it would take place, so all we're doing is stepping in what he's always already called us to do. I've been hearing some awesome stories about how people have shared their blessed card and have been able to either share the gospel, invite someone to church, invite someone to Bible study, be able to pray with someone. Steve and I were out to eat recently with another couple and they were actually paying for the meal. But when we asked her, our waitress, how we could pray for her, she broke down and started crying. She said, I'll be right back. And so she came back a few moments later and just poured her little heart out to me. And she ended up coming and kneeling back behind my seat and just telling me all these things. And I was able to just lay hands on her and pray over her. Well, at the end of that meal, I pulled out one of my blessed cards and some additional money and stuck it in with the the payment um, on the table there for her because I wanted her to know, not only would I pray for her, but I wanted to tangibly bless her and let her know the Lord sees, the Lord cares. He knows, he had me ask her. He had her be at our table to be our waitress that night. It was a divine appointment, and they're all around us if we'll just open our eyes. As I've been reading through the one-year chronological Bible, we have moved into the New Testament, and we're in the Gospels. And so I've loved watching Christ as he interacts. And it doesn't matter how tired he is, how long his day has been, when he looks out and sees people, he sees them, and he feels compassion. I'm afraid so often I'm so focused on my to-do list that I don't see. 
And if I don't see, I can't feel. So we've got to ask the Lord to enable us to see those he is placing in our path so that we can feel and have his heart of compassion for them. There is a book I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying, and the title is Habits of the Household. And he's talking about monastic communities in the past, how one of the reasons they pulled apart was because they recognized the pull of the world and that Christians were looking just like Rome or Babylon. Babylon. I mean, we were not separate and different from the world. And he's talking to people like Augustine and and St. Benedict and the, the rule of life they had. And so it was really just a rhythm of life. It was structures they put in place, spiritual disciplines, basically, that they built their lives around. But listen to this from the book. If we don't have radical communal habits to form us, we will end up conforming to the communal patterns of the world around us. They, these monastic people, saw with clear eyes that their world was malforming people into typical Babylonians and Romans, lives that were blind to seeing God for who he is, lives that were ordered around the love of self, the love of power, the love of riches, and the love of sex. Lives that look, from our perspective, suspiciously American. The phrase rule of life might be new to you, but the concept is not. We all have a set of communal habits we are defaulting to, but most of our families are defaulting to the American set of habits, the American rule of life. By not choosing our habits carefully, we are falling back on rhythms that are forming us in all the usual patterns of unceasing screen time, unending busyness, unrivaled consumerism, unrelenting loneliness, unmitigated addictions, and unparalleled distraction. Pretty well sums up our culture. He goes on to say, in suggesting that we reconsider our habits of the household, I'm suggesting that we reclaim the idea of creating a rule of life in our families so we can produce something other than the typical anxiety-ridden, depression-prone, lonely, confused, and screen-addicted teenager. Our oldest granddaughter is 14. She's a ninth grader. She's just entered high school. And I see the pull of the world on her. She has chosen to follow Christ. In fact, she actually resigned from the cheerleading squad that she had made, which was a big deal as a ninth grader to make the high school cheerleading squad, but they're a competitive squad. And so when she got the schedule, she realized they were practicing in a gym every Wednesday night, and she was going to miss like seven or eight Sundays just this fall for competitions. Their competitions are on Sunday. And so it was a struggle. So as her mom and dad looked at the schedule and they said, you know what, that's not putting Christ first. And Livy knew that, and so she made the hard decision to resign from the squad, and her coach allowed her to come in on the Monday that she resigned and explain to her squad why she was resigning, and she did, and I'm so proud of her for that, but the world hasn't stopped its pull on her. She made a hard and good decision that I know God will honor, but that that pull to be accepted, that pull to look like everybody else, to fit in, to dress like everybody else, is so strong. We've got to show them a better way. Daniel in the Old Testament was able to be in the world but not of it. Why? Because he chose to honor Christ in everything he did. He still prayed three times a day. He honored Christ even in what he ate. He wanted to honor God and God blessed him and used him to impact nations. Same with the early Christians. They created a new rule of life and they fostered it in community. They created a positive peer pressure which we can do as well. We were asked this question this week, where have you pitched your tent? 
Where is your tent pitched? Is it pitched toward Sodom and the world? Or is it pitched toward Christ? And is it firmly established and staked down into his word? The question we were asked or the statement that was made was consider your physical location, the activities in which you participate, the forms of media you consume, and the attitude of your heart toward sin. Ask yourself, how much time do you spend scrolling through the social media of Sodom compared to your time in God's word, prayer, and service? God does not look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Your inner man is more important than the outer. Our world values the physical world over the spiritual, but we must live and proclaim the better way, the way of Christ, the way of hope, the way of life, and of everlasting joy. That's what we have because we're in Christ Jesus. Now think about Lot's visitors. I want you to notice, first of all, who was not there. Who did not come with the two angels? Christ. God was not there. He did not come down into the wickedness of Sodom, but he sent his angels to bring judgment. Lot took his visitors into his house while Abraham was still living in a tent. I've said this so many times. Quite often, prosperity is a greater curse than adversity. When we're prosperous, we get complacent and comfortable, and we don't seek the Lord like we do in a crisis. The sin of Sodom, do not be mistaken, because there are people who try to refute this with homosexuality. Jude verse 7 says, and don't forget, Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Homosexuality is a sin of immorality, and it's the immorality that our culture has so embraced that has caused this downward slide that is revealed to us in Romans chapter 1, and when we choose to worship ourselves instead of the Creator, God begins to remove His hand of restraint from us, and He gives us over, Romans says, to a depraved mind, and we see that in Sodom. What about Lot's influence on others? His sons-in-law. They thought he was kidding. They didn't believe him. How sad that nothing in Lot's life led them to listen to him as a spiritual leader. What about his wife? Her affections were still in Sodom. That's why she looked back in 1926, because she, like the rich young ruler after her, loved her material possessions and her societal position more than she loved the Lord. Jesus himself said in Luke 17, remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. What about Lot's daughters? They'd obviously been profoundly impacted and shaped by their culture. I mean, their own father had been willing to give them to that lust crazed mob, his virgin daughters. So no wonder when they feel like their future is in jeopardy and there are no husbands for them because their fiancés have been destroyed, they use sex to get what they want. And yet we still see God's faithfulness. When Abraham went out the next morning, he looked down and he saw the smoke coming up. The Bible tells us God had remembered Abraham. He answered his prayers because he interceded on behalf of his nephew. Christ's reference to Sodom in Luke 17, I want us to listen to the kind of the the context of, of what he's saying here. 
in Luke 17, verses 28 through 36. And he had just said, it's going to be the same as it was in the day of Noah prior to that. And then in 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. In this passage, Christ compares the days of Noah, when the Bible says every thought and intent of man's heart was continually wicked, And he destroyed the world by flood. Also to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were going about their daily routine as though judgment was not coming. And Christ said, that's exactly the way it's going to be just before I return. People are going to be hard-hearted. They're not going to believe. They're going to be compromised quite like Lot. Now, let's just compare Lot and Abraham, can we? When we see them, when the angels come, where is Lot, the gate of a wicked city? Where is Abraham? At the door of his tent. Lot's living in a home. Abraham's still in a tent as a sojourner and a pilgrim. Lot walked by sight. He looked and saw and he took. Abraham walked by faith. Two angels visited Lot, but the Lord and two angels came to visit Abraham. Lot prepared a meal or a feast. Abraham prepared a feast, but he killed the fatted calf. He went to great um, lengths to prepare a feast fit for his royal visitors, and he stood by them to serve them. Lot offered his daughters to the mob. Abraham offered his son to the Lord. God's message to Lot was frightening. I'm bringing judgment, get out. God's message to Abraham was one of joy and blessing. Lot had no spiritual influence and Abraham's lineage is still blessing the world. Let's, if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter three. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, who had a struggle with immorality because it was a city that had ports on both sides. A lot of people came and went constantly. The temple of Venus was up on the the hillside there, and the temple prostitutes would come down into the city every night. So it's a church that had to set itself apart from its culture, and he had to address some of these issues. In chapter two, he's telling them they've received the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world, and that they literally can know the thoughts of God, and that the things God reveals are revealed to us through his spirit, and that the natural man, people who aren't saved, cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't get it. But then in chapter three, he moves into talking about a believer, but who's living in the 
flesh. He's carnal. He says, I, brethren, couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? There was division among them. They thought, oh, it was a really big deal if they'd been saved by Paul. I'm under Paul. I'm under Apollos. They were, there was divisions within the body of Christ, and he's rebuking them for this. And he's telling them that the foundation that's been laid is the foundation of the gospel, that they had laid the foundation of the gospel, but now they, the Corinthians, were going to be responsible for what they were building upon that foundation by how they were living their lives. Drop down to verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Lot, we only know, was righteous because of Peter. Peter's epistle telling us that his righteous soul was vexed within him because of the wickedness of Sodom. But he had not lived set apart. He had not lived a life honoring God. He was living just like everybody else in Sodom except for some of their immorality. But he had just blended right in. So consequently, he had absolutely no influence. And when he stood before the Lord, his life, everything it invested in, was going to go up in smoke. It was hay, wood, and stubble. And it says he would get in, but as through smoke, with nothing to show for his life, not having had any positive impact on those around him, not even his family members. That's what happens when we coast. And I just want to challenge us as believers to not just think because we come to church on Sunday morning or we do Bible study midweek, that we somehow are not going to be sucked into the value system of this world because we are being more impacted by it than we realize. And I believe it's the reason that when many high school students who have been raised in church go to college, they drop out of church because church was just something else their family did that did not profoundly impact the other days of their week. We should be living so for Christ that we think differently, talk differently, invest our time differently, invest our money differently than the world does. We don't value the things of the world. The world values everything that is on the exterior. The world values youth and money and possessions and consumerism and followers and all of those things that are going to burn up. They are hay, wood, and stubble. And if you have children, please, please model it before them. They're not going to do just what you talk about. They're actually going to become who you are. So if you are passionately pursuing Christ, they're going to catch that. They're not going to just be taught that. They have to catch your passion. They have to be around other people who are passionate. We see that in Lot. We see it in Abraham. Abraham wasn't perfect, and neither are we. <laughs> but that gives us great hope. We don't have to be. We just have to believe. 
That's what Abraham did. He believed. And because he believed God, he was willing to obey God. If we really believe him, if we really build our life upon his word and upon the gospel, we are going to trust him and we're going to step out in faith, out of our comfort zones, and we're going to do things that normally we would not choose to do. We're going to reach out and speak to people. We're going to go on mission trips. We're going to go into the inner city. We're going to serve our neighbor. We're going to stand in the gap and pray for the lots in our life that God will set them free and open their eyes. He is going to reveal to us what he's doing and where he's moving if we will be one of his intimates. If we will passionately pursue him, if we will choose to swim upstream, if we will choose instead to create a blessing vortex instead of getting sucked into the vortex of our world. That is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to live all out for Christ. I want every one of you to register for She Loves Out Loud on November the 5th. Do not miss this incredible opportunity to be exposed to women of faith, women who are friends of God like Abraham. Ladies, we have an unbelievable number of women that are going to be joining us, not to mention churches on six continents around the world. I got pictures this past week from Christy Haig with one more child of the women in Southeast Asia that they were able to minister to. That's Christy there standing in front of their great big She Loves Out Loud banner. They literally got to do Bible studies with these women, teach these women. They washed their feet and prayed over these women. Many of them have been rescued from sex trafficking, and they are all praying weekly and planning toward November the 5th, inviting their friends, sharing the gospel. We're going to have Jen Wilkin, who is an incredible Bible teacher and author, who is our keynote speaker, and she's going to, we've asked her to bring her message, Female Bravery in the Word of God. It is life-changing. Jackie Green and her husband, their family, are the founders of Hobby Lobby and the Bible Museum. She and her three daughters are investing their life in foster care and adoption. They are promoting it and training people, and they are going to be here to talk about that. We're going to hear from Carol Ward, who's the missionary that you guys have been exposed to before in Uganda and South Sudan, who prayed, Lord, send me where no one else wants to go. And when she went, there was not even one missionary organization that would sponsor her because they said, we can't take responsibility. You're going to come back in a body bag. Like, you won't survive. You're going to die if you go into these Muslim areas that are war-torn as a female Christian. And she went anyway over 20 years ago and has birthed a ministry called Favor International. And thousands of people have come to Christ. Whole villages have come to Christ. Churches have been planted. This is who you need to know. (laughs) These are the women that you need to be intimate with, that you need to learn about, spend time listening to, learning from, bring your daughters, your granddaughters. When I was raising, when we were raising our girls and our youth pastor asked us to start what was called Godwalkers, which was discipleship for high school girls. I had Lindsay under, in somebody else's class for a life group, Sunday school, and I was teaching another girl's class because I wanted her under other godly women who were reinforcing what we were teaching at home. But when he mentioned discipleship, I thought, ooh, I would love to do that. So I approached Lindsay and asked her about discipling her and her three best friends. She was all in. I was with them from ninth grade to 12th grade. Two of those young women are now married to men in ministry, and the other two are actively involved in their churches and married to believers. Ladies, it makes a huge difference, but I drove them all over the place to concerts and to hear people speak. We went to Atlanta to hear a pastor that that was really speaking and I felt like they would really connect with. I mean, I was constantly looking for things to feed them, to show them there are real 
believers out here that God is using and doing things that cannot be explained by man. It is not just because of their charisma or their creativity or their giftings. It is because they believe God and God is using them and he is doing things in them and through them. I wanted them exposed to. This is an opportunity to do that. And I want to encourage you to Listen, do, invite your friends, bring your family members. And we've got people flying in for this. This is an opportunity for us to connect with women literally around the world and seek the face of God and ask him to do one more time before Jesus returns to pour out his spirit and to send a revival, an awakening that we so desperately need and to use us to be proclaimers of the good news. So, we move into chapter 20 when we go back to Genesis and we see, you know, Abraham's doing so good. I mean, you know, he's back up on that upward trajectory. And then in 20, what's he going to do? He's going to take another tumble, right? Because he's afraid of Abimelech and they're in Gerar and he thinks, well, once again, Sarah's going to be, you know, he's going to be killed because Sarah's beautiful. Gosh, she's 90 years old. That's just amazing (laughs) to me. And she is taken into his harem. But what does God do? God had just said, a year from now, I'm going to come. And she's going to have had a son. And so what is God doing? He moves powerfully on her behalf. In fact, he wakens Abimelech in the night. And in a dream, he tells him, you are a dead man because of the woman that you have taken. And he says, Lord, I haven't touched her. Are you going to kill me in the integrity of my heart? I did this. It's Abraham that told me she was his sister. He says, I know that, but you better give her back now or you're going to die in all of your household. And so he tells his leaders the next morning and they give her back with a thousand pieces of silver and all kinds of other stuff, but he reprimands him. Did you notice that? Abraham, the friend of God, is reprimanded by the pagan king because the pagan king understood that God is just. And he asked him, would you do this when in the integrity of my heart, you know, I I took her, I was deceived. And he says, why did you do this? And he tells Sarah, I'm giving you back to your brother. And Abraham, but what did God say? Abraham is a prophet. He will pray for you. Abraham wasn't acting prophetly, but he is who God called him, and he would be who God created him to be. He was moving toward being that man that God already called him and saw him as. And so Abraham did pray, and God opened the wombs of Abimelech's wives and his servants. He was praying for God to bless and open the wombs when God had not yet opened Sarah's. But we see in 21, the time has finally come. Isn't that awesome? I love the words, the verses that open up chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. So we've got the beautiful birth of Isaac. The long-awaited one. Their faith has been made sight. Abraham and Sarah have a son from their bodies. Romans 4.19 said, And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. (laughs) But God is able, and nothing is impossible with him. And then we see in the last part of chapter 21 that Ishmael and Hagar are sent away, because what does Ishmael do? Um, when Isaac is weaned, he's mocking him at the celebration. And he represents the flesh, the world. And so he had to be sent away. We've talked many times about how in the Old Testament we have pictures 
of spiritual realities. This is a picture. In fact, Galatians goes into quite a bit of depth telling us that Ishmael and Hagar represent the flesh and that Abraham and Isaac and Sarah represent the spirit and that we have to do away with the flesh so that we can live in the spirit. And that's a physical picture there of a spiritual reality. In fact, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, just as Ishmael and Isaac were in conflict, so the flesh and the spirit do not harmonize. The flesh struggles against the spirit, often mocking it. Therefore, believers are to get rid of the slave woman and her son, that is to remove the threat of the flesh and live by the spirit. Now let's look one more time at our chart for Abraham's spiritual journey. We've got a a journey for Abraham, but you will remember when we did the chart before, we had Abraham journeying up. He's called in 12. He's journeying up. He does great. Then what does he do? He goes to Egypt because he reasons in his own mind and he he jumps back down. And then he's going to go up again when he comes back and he delivers a lot and he has Genesis 15, which is this pinnacle time. And then what does he do right after Genesis 15? Hagar, Ishmael. Here we go. Here's our chart. We're going to fall back down again. And then after that, he's going to head back up. And he's believing God again, and God is meeting with him. And we've got this awesome, the pre-incarnate Christ comes to meet with him and two angels. And he tells him what's going to happen a year from now. Then he reveals to him what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. He listens to Abraham's prayer. He accepts his intercession, and he remembers him and delivers Lot. That's incredible. But then, boom, he's going to fall on his face again because he allows fear to come in. And what does fear do? Fear forces out faith. We cannot walk by faith and fear man at the same time. We have fear or reverence only for God. And when we fear and revere him, we will never fear man. God had just given him the promise. Why would he think God would let Abimelech kill him? But he was thinking in the natural once again. And so he falls flat on his face again, and he's reprimanded by the pagan king. And then God restores Sarah, and 21, we're back on the uphill climb once again. And we're going, and guess what? He just keeps going this time. It just keeps going up. Because next week, we're going to see he's tested by God, and he passes the test with flying colors. Why? Because he had come to the point in his life where he so knew God, so knew that he would follow through, that he was faithful to his word, that the Bible tells us he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead if he needed to, because he would fulfill his promise through Isaac. He's going to finish his life out like that. Who are you most like this morning? You don't have to have a perfect journey with the Lord. You just got to be moving forward. You got to be striving to go forward, diligently pursuing Christ, wanting to be obedient, wanting to believe. And I know, you know, if you've listened to Steve's sermon series the last three weeks, it's all about the war that goes on in our mind. And yesterday, for some reason, yesterday afternoon, I had a great time yesterday morning. Yesterday afternoon, for some reason, I had this like foreboding something bad's going to happen. Feeling. Do you ever have that? It just comes out of nowhere. Well, I know it's a spirit. It's demonic. It's the enemy. He's trying to distract me. And so what do I do? I play praise music. I listen to a podcast, listen to a sermon. Um, And if you will do those things to battle The enemy has to flee. And then it just broke and was gone. But don't think that you're ever going to reach a place in your spiritual life where the enemy's not going to come after you again. 
Stephen said that so many times he came after Jesus. Who do you think you are? <laughs> He's coming after us. Why? Because he wants us to be ineffective. If you're a believer, he wants you to be carnal. He wants you to be caught up in the world. He wants you to live like Lot so that at the end of your life, you have had no influence. But ladies, if we really believe the judgment is coming and that it is going to be fire and brimstone, that there is a lake of fire that people are going to spend eternity in if they don't know Jesus, how can we complacently act as if it's not true? Do I believe that? Because if I believe it, I'm going to be serious about working through my family. And I did this years ago, worked through my concentric circles of my family, making sure all of my family members know Jesus, and at least I had shared the gospel with them. And my dad did the same thing, and he went through EE here, and he, we were focused on it. We were going through family member by family member. And if I didn't get to share the gospel with them, he did. We were diligent about that. And I want to encourage you, do that. Do you have a neighbor that's lost, a coworker, a child? You pray for them. You be Abraham. You intercede for them. You pray for them and you share the gospel with them because Jesus talked more about hell than heaven because he was warning us that unless you repent and believe, you will all likewise perish. Do we believe that? We say we do, but do our lives look like we do? Are we living with an urgency? Are we devouring his word? Are we going out into, the, into our communities to serve and take the name of Jesus? Do we really care about the lady that's checking us out at the cash register or the waitress or the waiter that's serving us? Do we care about our next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? It's going to be evident by how we live and how we go after them and how we pray for them. So I just want to encourage you this week. Maybe you feel like you're a little bit more like Lot. You've allowed the cultural vortex to kind of suck you in. And you've been whirling around in it. And you felt lonely. And felt like you didn't have purpose. And now the Lord is saying, get out. Get out. Let go of the world. Because if you cling to this life, what did Jesus say? You're going to lose it. But if you let go of your life, if you offer it on that altar, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, you gain everything. <laughs> you get, and you've got to die before you get to experience resurrection life. You get that, don't you? Jesus had to die before he was resurrected. We too have to die before we get to experience resurrection life. And it's a daily death. It's a daily dying to self so that Christ is manifest in my life and I can live for him. I have to daily die to my flesh because it is stubborn and obstinate. <laughs> I am stiff-necked and rebellious to the core. And every day I have to die to my flesh so I can hear him. I want him to visit me. I want him to come to my tent in the morning when I open his word. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to see his face. And he wants to reveal it to those who desire him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We bless you. Lord, this has been a tremendous amount of scripture. And God, it has so pierced my heart. Lord, I know the lure and the pull of the world is so strong, but your pull is stronger still. The power of your spirit is so much stronger. We will just turn to you. We will turn to your face and we will cry out to you. Even as Abraham did, you will move on our behalf. So Lord, I bless the women in this room in the name of Jesus today. And I'm asking that you will encourage them, that you will strengthen them. Lord, that they will choose today to turn their back on the world and turn their face 
toward you. And Father, I thank you that the moment they do, you will bless them, encourage them, receive them, and use them. So Father, use us for your glory and bless us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.